The legacy operators are always going to be there, but I think it matters in terms of what people what people are looking for in product that is trust and reliable, trustful and reliable. Hi, this is Neil, and it's time for a special bonus edition of Cannabis Daily. On November the 3rd, over 400 industry leaders, investors, and policymakers gathered at the New York Academy of Medicine to discuss the future of the New York cannabis market. Here is one of the panels at that event. By the way, tickets are now on sale for the 2023 conference in October next year. Get them now at CannabisNewYork.live. This panel is called License to Print Money. Ladies and gentlemen, let's bring out Deborah Borchar, Editor-in-Chief of Green Market Report, who will moderate this panel with expert input from Lucas McCann, CSO and co-founder of CanDelta, Jeff Gigel, partner of Millennial Strategies, and my good friends, Mary Pryor, co-founder of Canaclusive, and the CMO of Tricola Farms, and the impressionable Gia Marone of Women Grow. Good morning, everybody. And um, now that we've heard all that good news, here comes the doom and gloom panel. We're going we're gonna to give you a dose of reality. Because... I, and I'm going to let everybody say who they are, and then we're going to jump right in. Is If you're in the New York market, you know it hasn't gone as well as we had hoped. I'm Deborah Borchardt. I'm the executive editor of Green Market Report, Cannabis Financial News website. One quick plug, we just launched our Morning Rise newsletter this week, so please go to our website and sign up for that. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to uh, my good friend Mary over here. She's going to introduce herself, and each of the panelists will introduce themselves and give a brief description of who they are. Hello, uh, my name is Mary Pryor, co-founder of Canaclusive, and also current conditional cultivation uh, part owner up with Cretola Farms up in upstate New York. I've been in this space still sol- solidly for about five years, off and on before that, more so experience in other markets. And yeah, it's been an interesting journey. I think that we should be way more gracious and supportive given where we are and how things are opening in other states and what's happening in those places. So I'm going to try to provide a little positivity to the conversation versus the doom and gloom piece. Hi, good morning. This thing on? All right. My name is Jeff Keogh. I'm a partner over at Millennial Strategies. We're a government relations firm that services folks from all aspects of the cannabis industry. And I I also remain very optimistic that as we continue to kind of build this airplane in the air that is the state's cannabis industry, that, you know, we're we're, we're headed in the right right direction. And I I, I was certainly encouraged by what I heard before, for now. Uh, Hi there, I'm Lucas McCann. I'm uh, an organic chemist by training. Uh, I have a PhD in organic synthesis. Uh, which has been wildly useful in the cannabis industry for extraction and analytical testing, having an understanding of how to set up a lab. Uh, I work for CanDelta. We're a regulatory and scientific cannabis consulting firm. Uh, We've helped launch about 300 businesses across the U.S., Canada, and globally. And uh, we've also helped create regulatory frameworks for other nations, including First Nations and uh, communities in the Caribbean. Good morning, everyone. My name is Gia Maron. I'm president of Women Grow. I've been in the industry since 2015, and 
I'm probably not going to be very critical of the state since uh, many of the women in our community helped to advocate for the MRTA and actually uh, fought very hard for many years for the current structure that we have in place. Doesn't mean it's perfect, but it certainly means that we have supported uh, many of the efforts that uh, we now know as MURDA. So we're going to cover uh, three topics here on this panel. Uh, we don't have any insight on who's going to get these licenses or anything of that sort, uh, but we're going to break it down into the three things that we think are critical to getting started. And uh, that's going to cover uh, preparing your site location, real estate. We're going to touch on real estate. Then we're going to uh, jump into getting product on the shelves and then your actual workforce. So we're going to kick it off with talking about site locations. As far as I know, with the DASNY group, that we have not heard of any locations that have been approved yet. We have heard that landlords are not happy with the guidelines they were given. And yet, what I find super fascinating about the New York real estate market is these landlords not wanting a legal dispensary, but there are illegal dispensaries all over the place. So clearly, these landlords are saying yes to an illegal operation, but it sounds like they're saying no to the legal operation. How are these card applicants going to be able to secure a place for business? Yep, speak freely. I think what we're finding out, because the, the, the real play in the cannabis industry, whether you're going to do card or whether you're going to do one of the other licensure groups that's coming on down the line, the, the play right now is real estate. And commercial stock is really, really hard to come by anywhere in the downstate region. And I think the trepidation that we see a lot of landlords have is that your lease is predicated on your licensure. And so, it, one, you know, there, there is a reticence for cannabis in a lot of areas, notably outside of New York City, but also... You know, land, a, a smart landlord doesn't want to provide you with a lease when you might might end up getting denied and might not have money to pay. Them. And so that's kind of the sticky wicket that a lot of folks run into here. My question is, do we think that they'll always be apprehensive against the license holders or is there concern for the first round out of licenses? Do you understand what I mean by that? Anyone understand? I do. Yeah, we're talking about social equity license holders. Many of them have been just as impacted. And so I do wonder if there is a racial issue there in terms of what it may look like in the grander landscape of things as the greater applications become available. And I'll, be, and I'll be honest in saying that as a consultant for a couple of card licensees and a connector of dots, I've helped people find places that are willing to actually support and have their business, whether they're black, whether they're African, whether they're Puerto Rican, whether they're Dominican. So I've had the opposite experience because of the network of people that I've been able to keep around. But zip code matters. Zip code matters 100%. And we know that that happens in real estate. Yes, it happens in real estate. So I think that the thing is, is like a matter of like, you have to be very creative and very resourceful at this time. Yes. I think that there are entities, especially black and brown owners that have buildings or properties that want to get involved in a space and provide things for black and brown people. I think that there's going to just have to be a creative way of thinking about that and more honesty around the fact that people have 
bias against social equity applicants for reasons that are all stemmed in racism, unfortunately. And there's going to have to be a leveraging point where we're going to have to be honest about making sure that that's identified and called out while making space and making sure that we talk about what it is to like secure an LOI, know if you're getting fleeced or charged three times over because you're black or brown, like all of these things that have happened in other markets, what it means to prevent that here and what regulators are aware of given their extensive work that not only we've been in rooms telling them about, but that they're very aware of, of how this market has been affected by bias when it comes to real estate opportunities. Sorry, maybe just like fast forward six months too, when the larger applications open up for those that weren't eligible for CARD, you know, we're going to see a lot of very predatory leases with landlords coming and taking yes. advantage of this, thinking this is a greenwash industry. Yes. I can charge 3x, 10x what I would normally charge anybody else if they were opening a pharmacy or a restaurant. And uh, a lot of these folks don't know even to seek legal counsel to even make sure that this is a good lease. And there is such thing as a bad lease. I mean, leases are drawn by lawyers who are looking out for the interests of those that are getting paid. Right. And that's going to be the landlords on that. And if, if folks don't have an exit clause, like we don't know what this industry is going to look like. I mean, I have a pretty good idea seeing what other emerging industries look like. It'll be, you know, it'll be an oversupply or sorry, an undersupply, which will then lead to an oversupply. And then that'll lead to a price compression. And then everyone won't be getting $14 a gram like they thought they were going to. They'll be getting three, four dollars a gram in a little while. And then if folks all of a sudden are in a situation where it's not financially viable, they could be locked in for five plus five or 10 years. I think zip code absolutely matters, and I think you make a fantastic point there. We do a lot of work on Long Island and in the Hudson Valley outside of New York City. And if you look at the, the, the places where town governments and local governments have zoned cannabis activity, you're, you're looking at the most economically depressed parts of those regions already. So you, you, you're, you're already seeing that like implicit racial bias being implemented by municipal governments when it pertains to the card licenses. But I think that's the good thing about the DASNY program, because card applicants are going to, are going to be entering into an agreement with, with, with at least the state as a backer. Um, and, and hopefully that helps blunt some of this, this, this systemic issue. But it is alive and well, certainly in the areas outside of New York City. You know, when we were uh, prepping for this panel, at that time, there was really no information about locations. And last Friday, there was an initial set of guidelines that came out. And so we got a little bit more color on that, like being uh, X amount of feet away from schools and churches, etc. Only two signs for your store. But these got th these aren't like the set in stone guidelines. So how are these applicants managing this process of trying to find locations and knowing how to build out these stores? when these guidelines could change on them. Good. And only maybe to find out that maybe the Equinox gym down the street that has the whole building there maybe is owned by you know the Jewish Community Center as well, and then find out that that place is now ineligible. The folks would be getting into a lease and then find out that, you know, oh, there's a, there's a place to worship down the street that I didn't even consider this on a corner, and now two streets are now completely blacklisted from uh, from having retail stores. Place, place of worship is rather loosely defined under state law, by the way. So that there's also that problem. Yeah, that that's got to be maddening. As as a person like like Mary, you were just saying, you know, applying for these licenses and having this kind of shifting sand of of making your decision, it, it's got to be really difficult. Well, in the past, most of the applicants in other, that we've seen in other states have had to hold their real estate. And so when you consider our card applicants, while I'm sure, you know, they're, they're still seeking funding and still getting that support, holding real estate for over a year 
before you even know if you have a license or not is already a, a, a huge hit to your budget. So, you know, just hearing th these developments that will continue to come, right? It's actually showing how New York is doing something a little bit differently than I've seen in other states. And I actually enjoyed the first two panels before us because I know that there's been a lot of pushback. In, in the United States, there are 99.9% .9 small businesses who are considered the heart and core of our economy, yet they're usually always the hardest hit. And so our expectation is these small operators are supposed to hold on to some real estate until they find out if they get a license, what happens when they don't. And I'm glad that we have regulators that are aware that that's a trap. I think that we're doing so much negativity around, I don't like this, I don't like that, I don't like this, I don't like that. I can tell you sob stories from Michigan. I can tell you sob stories from Illinois. I can tell you sob stories for when people say, well, this state's doing that. And I'm like, this state hasn't even kicked off a social equity program yet. Or they lost their funding completely. Or they lost their funding completely. And so there's a lot of things from other places that, especially... Again, what's, what's Gia said, these are members from our community that all of us have seen along this road of talking about what it is to have legalized cannabis in the state for almost a decade. And so that understanding and that history of this type of predatory nature of not only a real estate deal, but a deal in itself, an operating agreement from somebody who's going to ravage your business and you might not be aware of it. All these things I think are really being taken into consideration with these regulations that are gonna come. And I value that a lot because we need to have that be the forefront because a lot of these things are going to be coming at everybody. They've already come at us. And so I just want people to be fully prepared and fully aware that no matter how protected and how ahead that you are, there's always gonna be something that you're gonna be missing and having to do a deeper dig on in this space because of the continued bias, first of all, and the continued nature of how people are still stigmatizing cannabis. So, so uh, Dassey's supposed to be leading the charge on this, and like I, I said, I've heard that there, there hasn't been a whole lot of headway there. Can these applicants potentially find a different location aside from what Dassey's working on? Could they come to them and say, hey, I did find a landlord that was willing to work with me. Can I go with this spot? Is that, do you think, an option that they may be entertaining? Well, that wasn't a requirement that they had to go Yeah, through. that wasn't a requirement at all. It was. And then they did a 180 and said, well, if you had, and finding a spot, you know, well, we guess we could entertain that idea for a little while. So that was a complete reversal on what they initially said. Folks realize finding industry, finding real estate is inherently quite hard. And, and, and that's been a manifestation of that. All right. So let's say, let's take it to the next step. The applicant finds the location, gets the landlord, signs the lease. Boom. We're ready to go. Got my two signs, got my security, da, da, da. Now, you got to put product on the shelf. I mean, it, retail is hard aside from cannabis. Throw in cannabis, and now you got to put some, some product on the shelf. What are you guys hearing as far? I'm so sorry. I just want to mention this because we're, very, we're always focused on the plant-touching side of the business. The real estate side, if we're talking about card applicants, you know, and, and I appreciate the efforts that DASNY put in place in terms of getting real estate. But they also chose a very large real estate entity. And then I had to sit back and I thought to myself, but there are so many black and brown 
people in real estate who would love the opportunity to be a part of this industry, but perhaps not on the plant touching side. And this gives them an opportunity to gain those legs in this industry by perhaps working with card uh, license holders and then beyond that. And so having the option of going beyond what DASNY is offering, I hope gives those other brokers of color an opportunity to get into perhaps cannabis real estate. I love that. I'm sorry, yeah, that's really, that. that's small. And, to, and, to, and to add on to that, there's a current program that's closing out. If you didn't submit your application, please do for the compliance training program being offered by the OCM. Closes tomorrow. Our firm's going to be doing some of the education. Having this, I don't care if you're going for it to be an accountant. I don't care if you're going to be going into packaging. I don't care if you're going to be going into real estate. Understanding what compliance is going to look like will helpfully will will help your business and what you need to be sourcing for and looking for tremendously. So please, please, the deadlines tomorrow apply to the program. The, the education material is really good. So talking about the product, when we did see the guidelines, I was struck by how many rules and regs there were around the packaging. And a lot of the packaging rules kind of cut out a lot of the traditional, I don't want to say traditional, the more familiar uh, cannabis products that are out there. Like those product packages won't fly. <laughs> what, what are the applicants, how are they navigating this as far as trying to pick a distributor because they have to go to a distributor to get their product and, and then getting the right product where they can compete with the illicit guy down the street who does have the fancy packaging that is illegal. There, there's a lot on the cultivation side that I, I think doesn't make sense to me. And, and one, of the, one of the groups of people that I think were left out were a lot of the folks that were legacy growers You know, early on. There's not really a place for them if they weren't registered hemp farmers in the state of New York to be able to play in this market. So we're, how, how do we convert those folks into the regulated industry? You know, how, how do we move those folks in? And you know, if they're not in the retail part, then they really don't sort of have a play in this yet. So I think that's one point of concern. The other is that it's hemp farmers that are conditional cannabis cultivators now, right? And that's typically folks that are growing either outdoors or in greenhouses. And, and the issue with that is one that's in soil. So microbial counts are, are, are a big thing that folks are not ready for because no one's doing hydroponics or aeroponics. And the other, uh, the other point there is like, we, we just had that repealed because you know, the, the farmers now are, con are concerned that they're not gonna hit these microbials, which are effectively like a global standard. And, and it's a very limited list of things. So what that was setting the stage up for was for cannabis to be very dry. It was gonna have to be irradiated, effectively microwave cannabis to be able to meet these microbial limits where terpenes would be evaporated off. It would be uh, tasteless, odorless, and folks would wanna go back to the stores that you're mentioning that were basically selling the illicit, untested, unregulated product that could be laced with, you know, pesticides and God knows what. So the fact that they've done that is, is, is good to allow folks to be able to adapt to these new sets of limits that they'll have to be able to, to grow within. And anyone growing in living soil is really going to have to irradiate their product, to be completely honest there. Yeah, I appreciated that they listened to the cultivators and made that change. I thought that that showed a, a real willingness to work with the cannabis community because... That's, I had heard that too, that there were a lot of complaints from the cultivators and I, I applaud the, the regulators for pivoting and saying, okay, we've listened to you and we've made these changes. I don't think that they're done listening. I think that, you know, we've heard Chris Alexander say we're, we're building as we're flying. And I think that there will be other steps as we continue to grow 
this market that they're going to have to go back and re-examine. The fact that they listen to the early cultivators uh, and use the word yet, right? And, and I love that term because being able to say, well, we realize that something is wrong and, and we haven't quite got it right yet. So they have to keep working on it. Plus, we already know the first products coming to market, it's gonna take a couple of rounds. So they're gonna to have to figure this out. And New York climate is very different, as we know, based on our uh, neighbors on the other coast. And so there's a different experience that people are going to get. The legacy operators are always going to be there, but I think it matters in terms of what people what people are looking for in product that is trust and reliable, trustful and reliable. And when you go to, let's say, the operators who are unlicensed, if you get a bad bag, are you really going to OCM? Can you even go to OCM? You can't. So that's the risk one takes. And so I think that this continues to be uh, a developing, in, uh, you know, emerging market for us. And I think we've got a few years before we can say we got it right. I think we're just starting out the gate, as we all know. And I think it's important for everyone who's looking at what processing needs to look like and what manufacturing needs to look like. Get to know these 25 people that have this conditional processing license right now. There are a few black and brown owners of those. There are a few folks that I trust that are non-melanated that are definitely ones who are sitting on advisory councils for the OCM and pretty aware of all the bad things that they're seeing from the other coasts that are trying to come here and they're not with it. So I think that building up that New York strong connectivity to what you need to make part of your supply chain is crucial just for your own information, whether you get a license or not. And I think that understanding that developing those relationships and just figuring out what it means to think about having cash on hand for these things to be done, as opposed to like doing 30 day or 60 day waiting for invoicing and really what it looks like for a funding piece as a conditional card owner is the biggest thing that I think everybody should be thinking about right now. And I was just going to say, Gia, you brought up a great point about being patient because I know I, I've been in, you know, covering this industry for a long time and I'd be in California dispensaries and see all the product. And then when Massachusetts went live and I went to dispensary in the early days and I was like, this is all you've got. This is terrible. And then fast forward to today, you can go into any of the dispensaries in Massachusetts and it's a whole plethora of choices and familiar brands. It, it, it took time. And, and I think that, and, and we've seen the same with New Jersey, you know, day one, I think all you could get was flour and vape and they, they've slowly added, you know, product to the shelves. And maybe that's it, is that we've seen these, us that are in the industry, you've seen these other states and these other products, and we're just like, you know, hurry up, hurry up. I look at it as a newborn. Newborns don't, I mean, except for these pandemic babies, but the newborns, you know, <laughs> it takes time. They don't just come out walking. Uh, but, you know, over time, we're going to see progress. And so I think we look at the industry as a newborn. It will evolve. It will get better but we can't expect out the gate it's going to be perfect. Even looking at other states, they've always had to go back and fix things. And so just as you mentioned about Massachusetts and any other market, but I recognize you wanted to say something. And uh, oh, thanks. Yeah, I, I was just gonna say that, you know, to, to, to your earlier point, when it comes to the packaging stuff, it's probably gonna be among the most iterative parts of this industry, I would say. 
because there's so many actors who have the capacity to weigh in on what the packaging can say. So you're going to see the state legislature try to legislate outside of the OCM for better or for worse, sometimes for worse, as to what this packaging should say. And then you're going to see your bigger municipal governments say, you know what, this doesn't work for us. We're going to try to put in our own packaging regs that, of course, run afoul of state law. But that's never stopped local governments anyway from doing something legal. So like th to your point, this is going to evolve and evolve and evolve over time. I happen to have a, a pandemic baby. He was born on May 6th. And, you know, he's heading to college now, right? Uh, yeah, yes. He's headed for college. And he, he, he runs the house. He's in charge of everything. And but like some days there's an explosion of language and you're really excited. And some days like we take a couple of steps back. And I think that's that's exactly where like this particular piece of the industry is going to be. It's rough to say to someone who's like, I want to be in this like, hey, relax, it's going to happen. I have a very big desire to one not say that things are the letter I in terms of what's currently in the market. I'm not going to downplay or downtrend or say that I have an issue with current black and brown people that are operating how they want to operate right now. I am just very mindful that I don't want to see black and brown people imprisoned or put in a bad place, given what's currently happening. This has happened in every state. Um, New York is going to New York. We're going to do it the way we want to do it, the way it's going to be. But the thing of the matter is that I think that we have to give this group and this OCM continued information of things that we want to see and things that we're seeing. And if you're a current license holder on the cultivation side, like farmers will never stop talking to the OCM, they'll never stop talking to people that have come and done these visitations. So we're all still learning. We're all very, very early, but being involved in the community and talking to people that are in this process and building those connections, which might lead to someone who actually does have real estate they wanna be able to connect you with or a funder that might be able to like really consider what they can do to do something that's earnest and honest in terms of investing in your business. All that is happening right now. And I mean, at the end of the day, look, New York is the center of marketing and advertising and creativity. We have so many colleges that, you know, are art colleges that are churning out some amazing talent. And, you know, we're, our, our market has really been to this point uh, directed by the West Coast. And I think now we have a real opportunity in New York to create some East Coast brands with some East Coast vibe and some East Coast uh, flavor that it has not existed in the market yet. And I think that with, with the talent that is in this city, I, I think it's going to be, I, I, I'm kind of excited to see what they come up with. I mean, how do you advertise and market in an industry where marketing and advertising is effectively prohibited? It's going to be very difficult. And I think what we're going to see Except is Except on Green Market Report, you can advertise. <laughs> Excellent plug. Uh, well, there, well done. I couldn't help it. But I mean, going back to that newborn analogy, newborns are sometimes born to, to new parents. And, you know, they also don't know what they're doing just as much as the newborn doesn't as well. Yeah, yeah, myself included. And uh, we're going to see a very consumer-driven industry, I think. And what, what, what's going to drive this industry where there's very little marketing and advertising happening, with exceptions, is that it's going to be a numbers game. People are going to be looking for very high THC products. That's going to be what drives uh, uh, sales is, is folks have very, very high potency, much like when folks are shopping for liquor. You know, they'll, they'll take something that's 40% over 35% because they want less sugar, less of the other stuff and more of what they think is really going to put them on, on their butt. So there's less information about, you know, how, how do terpenes play into the endocannabinoid system? How, how do the other minor cannabinoids affect me? What are some of the bits of anecdotal evidence that are associated with those minor cannabinoids and the way that the guidance document has been structured? 
that information can't even be diffused at the source where the bud tenders are going to be interacting with clients. So what they're going to go on is what percentage THC does that product have and how much of it can I buy? You brought up the keyword that is our segue into our last little section on this panel, and that is the workforce. Okay, so you find your site, you got your distributor, you got your product lined up, you got to have people in that store. And you actually, from what I could tell from the guidelines, you have to have this plan, this workforce plan. I wrote about a, a lawsuit that just happened in, in one of the municipalities in New Jersey where one of the applicants was turned down. They said, we well, didn't really have a, a workforce plan. And they were like, you had a 14 page workforce plan. What are you talking about? How are they going to now navigate hiring people for these jobs? What, what, what process do they take? So, so it, it's kind of amazing that we, we, we've been here, you know, since 845 this morning, whatever it is. And, and we have not yet talked about one of the, what I think is one of the best parts of the MRTA, which, which is the mandate on labor peace. This is a big deal. You know, you know like it was really intentionally drafted so that like the, the cannabis jobs are not like your $15 an hour fly by night Amazon warehouse jobs. These are supposed to be real careers that provide health insurance that, that allow for folks to have careers in this business. And there's going, to be, there's going to be, I certainly hope, a robust tier for union-based apprenticeship programs. Um, and you're already seeing folks like the Department of Labor and the Workforce Development Institute invest a lot of money in making sure that unlike, for example, New York's wine industry, where a lot of the folks that work in that business are from California and France and whatever the case may be, that the folks that work in cultivation and distribution and, and in dispensaries are folks who are from those communities. And I think, I think that's really, really key. Um, and, and I think labor played a really big part in drafting the MRTA. And I think that's one of the most attractive things about this industry. Starting at 18 years old, because apparently they can be in a non-client facing role according to the guidance document as well at these stores. So that was a so there's a few things I want to say. One, I agree, New York is going to be very unique in terms of not only just the retailers, but the sectors, the subsectors that we can really enforce on. We're a heavy technology-driven city. I hope people are looking at the cannabis tech sector uh, because it's a huge miss if you're not. Uh, you know, there's always development here. Uh, you know, while this conversation is on card, you know, we also have to look at, you know, the limitations around marketing. But people have always been creative when it comes to marketing. When, look, look at the sign guy. This dude gets 50000 just to hold a cardboard box sign up. Meanwhile, it's working, right? And so, you know, we recognize what's written. It's really the people who are truly understanding the language that's been written, how to work around it. It doesn't mean you're breaking any laws, but you're like, well, according to what you have laid out here, we can do these following things in terms of marketing. Heck, you just did it with Green Market Report on a stage that many people are live streaming now. And so I want us to, to again, recognize that if these things weren't in place, we would then have issues from parties who are opposed to cannabis. And oftentimes, as you mentioned, Long Island and Westchester, we know how much they pushed back because they were concerned about the kids and marketing, right? And those challenges My there. kids are going to come to school high because they have no access to cannabis already. <laughs> right. It's My employees will come to work high. And so if we left it open then we would then be faced with all the challenges of those who are opposed. So I understand why those issues are in place. 
I actually come from a communications background, so I understand. I'm like, man, this is frustrating, but it's forcing me to think creatively and do it in a responsible way that will still gain the respect of consumers as well as not offend the OCM, of course, who's monitoring, monitoring us. I think there was a very key word you said in that, and that was the word me. And I think that's where the story can shine through. And I think that's where the retailers and dispensary operators and owners are going to have to tell their story. It'll be their story, not the store name, not the corporation. I know corporations are people here, right? So we got to look out for their best interest, but it's actually going to be the story of the individuals that Absolutely. are running and driving this industry forward. And the first one selling legal regulated cannabis in the city of New York, it'll be that that they can advertise that that they can tell and that that can't be silenced. I, I guess some of the applicants will be, you know, kind of sticker shocked at the cost of their labor. But I've also written so many stories about lawsuits in other states where employees didn't, you know, get paid for putting on their PPE when it took them 20 minutes to get that stuff on for, for or get COVID testing before they started their shift. That was really crummy. I couldn't believe employers were doing that to their employees. And um, I'm, I'm hopeful that because New York kind of started right out of the gate saying, we want to make sure these, this workforce is paid appropriately. And local, right? They're local enforcing that, 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 lo that local piece of it, which I think is important. And we're beginning to see through CUNY and SUNY systems, all of these programs that are, are coming online, uh, which I, I'm hopeful for that as well. Because for those who are not interested in having a license, but are looking for on-the-job education, I think it's a great way to, to really understand where you best fit in this industry. I think those are coming into the space as though these licenses are the one-all, be-all, as though there's never an opportunity again. Oftentimes, those who are first to the market struggle the most. And we end up learning from those who have reached the market second and third round. So I think working in the space, hiring locally, I mean, we wouldn't be New York State residents and not uh, support local hire and, and from the communities that are impacted. But, but beyond that, those who are upstate that are looking to get that experience downstate and vice versa. I think that the big thing that I'm concerned with, though, is just like making sure that there's protection around those who come from other places as far as like immigration laws, what that means for this particular market given the diverse nature of downstate and the diverse nature of people that make up downstate. So there needs to be a lot of understanding from that big loophole there for when it comes to hiring and someone taking on a role, what that means in terms of like legality for that person too. One of the things I've always uh, thought was impressive about the cannabis industry is it gives an opportunity for a lot of people that don't wanna work in more traditional mainstream industries. There's a lot of people that don't want to go to a cubicle job. They don't want to work at a bank. They don't want to work in an office. They want to work in a cool industry. And at the end of the day, cannabis is probably cool. Industry. No, it is. <laughs> and, and I say that to say, when you think about the, you know, we're an urban city. And if, if many of our young children, doesn't matter what color you are, but if you've never been out upstate and get exposed to some of the farming, and now the interest of many young people saying, I wanna see what a cultivation looks like. And, and they're now more interested in not just growing, but understanding the science behind it. Imagine if education really worked that way. 
you'd probably get more people in the roles of agriculture. And so I think now it's, it's an interesting, it, it's, it's sexy, but it's appealing that, oh, now I really know where my cannabis is coming from. And now I can go and meet the farmer, just like many of, the, many of us who are conscious about where our food is coming from. Why not know where, where your weed is coming from? All right. We are running out of time. Do you guys have just some final quick thoughts? I have one piece of gloom and doom to add to this, to the gloom and doom panel. Now, for those of you, for those of you who, who don't know, election day is coming up real soon. Early voting has already started. There are some really terrific pro-cannabis candidates out there who are, who are in close races. Do your research and figure out who those people are there are folks running statewide who are hostile to this industry. If you have not voted, get out and vote. And if you care about this industry, you'll know who to support. But the most important thing is that you vote. Yes, yes, yes. He is absolutely right. Uh, I, I just say I'm very excited about this industry. I think we're at the cusp of something very, very exciting. The guidance documents have shown me that there's a lot of good that I think is coming down the pipe, not just for what the guidance document for retail would look like, but cultivation regulations and uh, manufacturing regulations. There's a lot of promise there. There's a lot of holes, but my favorite part of that guidance document was section 36. It's the last section there. And that's that the office reserves the authority to issue changes. So we are still very early and we can course correct here. Legalization is a process. It's not an event. That's right. This is not, a sprint. It, it is a marathon. Uh, one of one of the things I'd like to say is I'm extremely hopeful for small business operators overall, whether from the retail side or from the packaging side. I know a lot of people were upset with some of the language that recently came out uh, in terms of uh, products going on shelves. But I then think about the small operators who have always had to compete against the big players. And when they finally do get on the shelf, it's way in the back right? Because the front shells have been purchased. And so I think it's, it's a, a fair way of allowing those individuals to make those selections and not sort of be coerced into going with the big player because they have more money. And I think that that makes a difference in a city that, uh, especially, you know, you got to be strong and, and have thick skin in order to survive here. And here, I feel like it's a more fair way. I'm excited to see and know some of the people that are currently in this waiting process for CARD actually launch their businesses. I, hey, think that, I think that community and advocacy can work in terms of informing each other and staying connected when it comes to things like this. I think that people are very creative and the word will get out and the businesses will have the lines that need to be there and we all need to be patient. It's This is a process that other states have had way more bumps and hurdles with, and I'm, I'm practicing patience. All right, thank you everyone. We ended on a high note, positive, positive comment. So they had Deborah Borchart, the editor-in-chief of the Green Market Report. She was moderating. Lucas McCann, the CSO and co-founder at CanDelta. Jeff Gilo, partner at Millennial Strategies. Mary Pryor, the co-founder at Canocclusive and CMO of Tricola Farms. And Gia Marone, president of Women Grow. Now, you can secure your seat at next year's event right this second. It's scheduled for the 4th of October, 2023. Tickets are on sale at CannabisNewYork.live. You'll find the link in the show notes.